Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for times like these that we get to uh, pause in our lives and come into your presence um, and also come among your people. And it's times like these where we get to experiencing you, experience you in a different way than we do in our daily lives. And so, Father, I pray as we come under now the teaching of your word, would your word speak to our hearts? Would it be a word of encouragement or a word of challenge? A word of change, but Father, I pray that you would feed us this morning with the truth of your word and allow us uh, to just receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this summer, uh, Sarah and I will be uh, celebrating our 17th year of marriage. It's, it's, I'm like, where in the world has time gone? Thank you, thank you. More credits for her for sticking with me through those years than me for her. Uh, but this summer, so we will be sharing our, our 17th year of marriage. And during uh, our, our wedding, we made this covenantal promise uh, during the wedding ceremony and through the service. And one of the uh, covenantal promises that I made to her was that I would care for her. I said, I, on this day, from this day forward, I will, will care for you. And literally what, what happened that day is, is the idea of, that was one of the covenantal promises I made, was to care for her. And what that meant is from that day forward, one of the lenses through which I interpreted my actions and my thoughts throughout the day was this thought of, how is it that I'm caring for, for Sarah? So as I wake up in the morning and I, and I, and I think about my day and I, I try to filter my activities, I say, is this really caring for Sarah or is this really not caring for Sarah? So that was, that's the filter. That's, that's what happens when you make a covenantal promise. There are things that you take on that change your life from that moment on. And in the first few months of getting married, I, I really took that and I owned that. And I thought I was doing a great job. Like I really was sincerely with my whole heart because I loved her, wanted to care for her. And so I did all of these things because I cared for her. And it was about six months into our marriage that I, I came home one day and Sarah was visibly upset. She was sitting on the couch and she was visibly upset. I didn't know what was going on. So I went to her and I said, what's wrong? And she replied to me. She looked me straight in the eyes and she's like, I had to get gas today. I'm like, and that was it. It was just, I had to get gas today, period. I thought there was something else. Like, I had to get gas today, and there was no money, so I couldn't get gas. Or I had to get gas today, and I got the wrong kind. Or I had to get gas in something else, but in my mind, there was nothing else. And so I said, what do you mean you had to get gas today? I'm like, tell me more. And she said, well... You just don't understand. I had to get gas today. Do you even care for me? That statement alone sent us into our very first sleepless night. Because that statement, I took that statement and it caused me to be very hurt and very upset. Here I was trying to care for her in every way possible that I could think of. And she comes back at me and she says, do you even care for me? Oh, I was so hurt. I was so mad. I was angry. And so we got into this discussion that went on for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I remembered that somehow I, had, I, I felt offended. In some way, she was offended at what I wasn't doing. And, and I remember through the conversation, there were a couple times in the past that she had she'd said something. She'd slipped in some comments into some of our interactions before that. She said, you know, uh, we were asking about each other's day. And she said, you know, I, I had to stop and get gas today. Okay, great. And then another time she would say, I'm like, how was your day? And she would say, well, I, I, I stopped by the gas station today. 
I say, well, great, I went and had lunch today. You know, we're just having this, I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm just thinking to, to each other that we're just in this conversation, we want to know about each other's days. I wasn't picking up on any of these clues that she was laying down. And so we got into this conversation, and we continued until it was about three o'clock in the morning that I, we uncovered the truth of what the problem was. Three in the morning. We, got, we went after it. I found out that one of the ways that Sarah's dad cared for her mother was to always make sure that her car was full of gas. He would come home from work, or whenever it was, he would come and he would make sure he'd check on the car, and then even if in the middle of the night it needed gas, he would get in the car and he would go get gas. So that's one thing that his, his wife never had to do. Sarah's mom never, ever had to do. And Sarah's dad continued to do this for Sarah as she continued to start to drive and all that. And then whenever she went home, even though she was in college and all that, she came home and her dad always, always made sure that her gas tank was full. And so that is how she interpreted being cared for, making sure that she didn't have, that's one thing she didn't have to worry about in her life. And me being the thick-headed guy that wasn't caring or whatever, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. And one of the things we talked about in our premarital counseling is that uh, we talked with our pastor was the need to communicate expectations. When our, communi- when our expectations aren't met, that's when we feel hurt and that's when we feel offended. And so Sarah was feeling hurt and offended because I was not meeting her expectations. And the problem was she did not communicate those expectations to me because I have a desire to meet her expectations. I, I promised to care for her. And if she interprets caring for, by me pumping gas, I pump the gas. Now, we've kind of moved on from that now. If you look at our lives today, she pumps the gas sometimes. Um, but more times than not, I care for her. And I, I look to, to watch the gauge and I try to jump ahead and, and pump gas when I can. So what we see at play here, and we're going to see this in Scripture today, is that when we enter into covenantal relationships, there are certain things where we promise. So there are, there are the big, big ideas, there are principles of the covenant. So the principle of our marriage covenant was that I would care for her. That's a, that's a big overarching principle, right? But then that principle is shown up through different practices, so in our case, I pump gas as a practice because of the principle that I care for her. Does that make sense? So big overarching things bring themselves down into practices. Now, you may not show care for your spouse by pumping gas. Nor do I expect you to pump the gas for my wife because you're not in the principle of caring for her. Right? Make sense? All right, this is kind of the backdrop that we're going to see as, as God is in the process of entering into the covenant relationship with Israel. Last week, as we, we looked at the Ten Commandments and we looked at, at God giving the law to, to Moses, to the people, we see that that was the covenant. The Ten Commandments are the big ten principles of the covenant. So these are the overarching things that we can see about this covenant that God was entering into with his people. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to further flesh out the practices of that covenant or God laying out his expectations. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I don't know what page it's on, but if you go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, then you go to chapter 20, and that's where we're going to look today in, in verse 22. 
So last week when we left off in, in discovering at the mountain and God and his relationship with his people, we left, last left off where God had shown himself through an amazing way through this mountain. God's glory and God's presence and God's words came through this glorious mountain. And the people of God had been brought to the base of this mountain where they get to see God show up in this amazing, scary, overwhelming, intimidating way. Because God wanted to make himself known to his people. And we see as the outcome of that, we see that God's people saw God in this way, this intimidating, overwhelming, and scary way, and they said, we need to move away from this God because this God is too big for us. This God is too scary for us. So Moses, you please, we don't want God to speak in this way anymore. So Moses, you please be our spokesperson. You please tell us what God says, and we will believe you. But please, God, don't show up in that way again. And so what we see at the end of, of our passage last week is the people of God move away and Moses presses in deeper to God to hear God's voice for the people. So God speaks. Now we're going to pick up today. We're going to see God continues to speak. God continues to tell Moses what he needs to say to his people. And the text we're going to look at today is, is known as the book of Covenant. It's not the Ten Commandments, but it's the Book of Covenant. And the way this is used, is, is the way God uses this, is, this, is his expectations or his behaviors that he expects his people to live with inside of the covenant. Now, the challenge with the Book of Covenants, just as the challenge with the Ten Commandments, is that, that we on the outside of this, as we come to texts like the Ten Commandments and the Book of Covenants, is we have a tendency to want to misinterpret and misapply these covenants or these words throughout the years. For example, some might be tempted to look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 25, and I'll read them to you in a second, but we, we have the tendency to come to passages like these and use them to support, use as a supporting text to condemn abortion or support capital punishment. Let me read for you. This is with inside the book of the covenants. God says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Some would come here and say, here is a direct passage that condemns abortion and condones capital punishment. And though I believe the Bible does teach the practice of abortion should not take place, you can't come to texts just like this and cherry pick it out and say, this verse is exactly what it means and this is my position comes from this verse because what you can't do that because you're taking this verse out of context. This verse is, is, these verses are coming in context of a larger teaching and a larger purpose. So I want to help us begin to interpret passages today. I want us to help us learn as we we hope to glean some meaning from the book of covenants as God's law. I want us to see the proper way of helping to interpret this. What we need to understand is the book of covenants is, as God's law, it was used by God to reveal himself, to reveal his nature to a specific people that were living at a particular point in history with a specific purpose. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God's revealing himself to a specific, specific set of people 
that we're living at a particular point in time with a specific purpose. And we need to understand those three things in order to better interpret what is taking place and ha- then how it applies to our lives. So we're going to do that today together. So let me give you an example of, of, of how this plays itself out so you can kind of see how it helps out. In our family, we have uh, lots of overarching principles, okay? Uh, but two of the main overarching principles that we try to to live within the bounds of our family are these one is that we love each other brother our sisters and our, our and we love our children and our sisters love each other and all those good things so so we we love each other that's one of the things we try to do and the second thing is is we want to be good stewards of all that god has given us those are pretty good principles right love each other and be good stewards of what god has given us now practically speaking in looking at that last week i gave the command in our family, I said, do not kick the seat in the van or blank, 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 blank. Okay? So I gave, I, I, I gave the practice. I gave the command. Thou shalt not kick the seat in our van or else blah, 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 blah. You guys get it? Now, let's take a look at that statement and let's break it down, okay? I gave the command. This command was not given to you. If you feel like going to your car this afternoon on the way home and kicking the heck out of the seat, go for it. That's your van. That's your car. I don't care. I'm not going to come to your house and say, blah, 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 is going to happen to you because you kicked the seat in your own van. I don't care. But I care in my van. So, get it? Kind of see where we're going? So, in the, in the bounds of that, I gave the command that was given to my family. You can kick the chair all you want because this command was given to my kids it was also given at a particular point in our history. You know, there may be some day that we don't have a van, so it's no longer applicable, right? There may be some day that we have a, a, a Mercedes, um, probably not, but we may have a Mercedes that, that's a convertible, whatever, and, and, we, I, and I can now no longer say, don't kick the seat in the van, because it's not a van, right? It's a car then. But there's also going to be a time that my kids are going to grow up, and guess what? They're going to be driving on their own. And so this specific rule, this specific practice is no longer going to be applicable for their lives. Why? Because they will not be riding in my van. Also, this command was given to my kids. It was given at a particular point, but it was given for a specific reason. See, as we're driving down the road, remember those two overarching principles love each other, and care for the things that God has given us? Well, this is the scenario of how it played out. There was a, one child in the very back row that was having a disagreement with a child in the middle row. And we heard their conversations getting heated over a certain thing, and we, mom and, mom and I piped back, hey girls, watch your words, guard your words, use kind words. That didn't happen. It got escalated a little bit more, and we said, please do not hit your sister." A few seconds later, we hear this whack, whack. Like, what? What did you, did you just not hear? So we turn around to one of the child's children sitting in the back, and we say, why did you hit your sister? Why did you? We just told you not to hit your sister. And she said, I didn't. I didn't hit my sister. I thought we didn't hit her. And I said, well, she's crying. How did, I didn't hit my sister. I kicked the chair, and the chair hit my sister. You guys remember that? So you see, like in that, in that statement of that child, you, do you see the depravity of man? 
I mean, Jesus, like in, in my van, depravity of man coming to full force. And the, like, I am so like that too. Like, we want to hold ourselves to the letter of the law. Well, did you not say, God? Did you not say? Like, I, did not, I didn't actually hit her, right? I have validation. The child in the back row can say, I actually did not hit her. I hit the seat, and the seat hit her, so I'm no longer liable, right? <laughs> not good enough, right? So, in instance, that's what brought about that specific reason is why the rule, do not kick the seat, is in force in our vehicle. Make sense? In much the same way, this is what's going on is God is giving this book of covenant. He's giving it to specific people at a specific point in time for a specific purpose. The difference between the way God responds and these, these covenantal practices and the way that we respond is that God is proactive in his response. God, from this mountain, as he's giving out this law of covenants, sees into the future and knows what his people are going to be challenged with. He says, this is what you're going to face. These are the challenges that you're going to have, and this is how you navigate through this. Where we as humans, where I am, as I seek to, to govern and care for my family, I'm very reactive. Like, I'm not forward-thinking enough to say, well, you must do this, this, and this. There was no way along the way that I, I said, when the kids were three, you guys must practice not kicking your seats in the car. That just wasn't happening. But God, as he lays this out, is forward-thinking. And he's saying, this is what you're going to encounter, and this is how you live in this covenantal relationship. Make sense? All right. So let's begin to dive in. Last week, remember God, as he's giving the principles of the covenant, he, on a big level, he breaks it down and he says, in this covenant relationship, the Ten Commandments, these Ten Commandments are for you to live so that you know how to live in relationship with the God of the universe. So you know how to live with God, but then he also says, this is how you relate and live in relationship with people. Today, as we jump into our text, we're going to see him doing the same thing. He's using those bigger principles, and he's going to break them down into specific practices that were given to these people uh, for what they are to do. And they're organized in similar ways. So if we were to take a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 22, to the end of chapter 20, we see God is going to talk about the worship relationship to God. And then in chapter 21, all of chapter 21, into half of 22, he's going to look at how do we live in relationship with people. And then in chapter 22, the end of chapter 22 through chapter 23, he's going to talk about weaving together how this relationship to God and this relationship to people kind of intersect each other at the same time. Okay? So he's going to give specific practices of things to do. So let's overview, let's look at an overview of some of these practices. Let's look at uh, chapter 20, verse 22. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourself that I have talked to you from heaven. You shall make no gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So first, we're going to see he's going to give us the overview of the practices of how we relate or how these people, how God's people were to relate to God through worship. He gives them a couple of things. He says, first of all, don't make idols for yourself. 
says, there's going to be a tendency inside of your heart, because you know God is scary and God is awesome and God is mighty, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to bring God and make him low. You're going to want to bring God who's up there, who's massive and he's amazing and he's scary and he's holy and he's awesome, and you're going to want to bring him down to a place where he's manageable. Some place where you can, you can contain God, somewhere that you can try to relate to God in a way that you understand. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're making God lesser than what he really is. So don't do it. Don't worship a God. Don't make a God out of gold or silver. Even though you may use the most precious metals, don't do that to God. Because God is not contained in those things. Do not give your heart to them. Do not give your worship to them. And then he also says, and and about altars, you know, because you're a sinful person, because you will need to do things in order to to be reminded of your sin and your separation from God, you need to have altars. There'll be a time where you do these certain sacrifices. You have different types, and he lays them out. He says, these are the types of circumstances in which you will have to provide worship. You'll have to kill oxen and sheep. Blood will be spilled. But when, even, even when you set up those altars, I want you to do it in such a way that you do it from the earth. Things that God created. Don't take the things that God has created and change them. Don't take a stone and carve it so that it's even more beautiful. It's beautiful in its own essence because I made it with my own hands, God is saying. So you take those pure stones, you lay them down, and you remember as you're sacrificing those animals who I am and who you are. Don't make an altar out of your own hands because, again, that's taking away. The focus is away from God, back on yourself. So he's giving them some guidelines. Like, when you do this, you will know if you're doing it right. And then he moves into chapter 21 uh, through half of 22, and he he gives some guidelines uh, for relating with people. I'm going to read some of them this morning. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, you shall serve... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If your master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, and the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. You're like, what is all of that about? Well, we see as we're relating with people, God is giving his people guidelines of how to treat slaves. God is not condoning slavery in the same way today. He's not saying, okay, we can take this out of this passage and say, today God's condoning slavery, therefore thou shalt have slaves. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's, he's connecting with the culture of the time, and you've got to remember where God's people just came from. Remember what they were just a few months ago? They were slaves, They were slaves that were being mistreated. And so God leads with this to remind them, as you're now living in this world that is free, take great care not to return and to do what you saw done to you in Egypt. That's why why he's giving this guideline. He's saying, don't go that same way. And so he, he spells out even more. And if you have time this afternoon, please read. It's very, it's very well thought out and it's very progressive of how you are to treat a slave. Then he goes on and he, he further fleshes out what he, what he said earlier about the prohibition against murder. Look at me in verses 12 and 14. He says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning and shall take him from an altar, 
that he may die. So here we see a further fleshing out the prohibition of murder and the consequences of it. God is giving them the guidelines of, of when fighting happens. He can see a time when fighting is going to happen between men, and there's a different type of, of murder. There's a different type of death that takes place. When, the, when death is preceded by premeditated uh, death, then there's a different consequence for that than if something were to happen, you get in an argument, and it just happens, right? And so he's given them the guidelines, so he further fleshes that out in relating to people. Then he talks about how to honor the parents, so he's further fleshing out what he gave in the principle. He says, honor your parents. Look at me in verses 15 and 17. He says, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So he'd already given them the principle of saying, honor your father and mother. And now he's saying here, not honoring them is shown up as when you curse them or you strike them. If you do those things, you shall be put to death. That's the consequence. In verse 16, he's going to talk with them about how to properly deal with possessions and people. 16 and following. Look at me in verse 16. He says, when whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found a possession of him shall be put to death. And so that's the guiding principle, or that's, that's the practice of what he said earlier in the principles. And now we're going to see further consequences later on in this chapter. Then he also goes in and he talks to the need to make restitution. When things happen, when, when brothers fight against brothers or there's disagreements, there is a need for restitution. Look with me in verse 33 of chapter 21. He says, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall make, give money to his owner and the, death be, the dead beast shall be his. Now here's the beauty of this. Like you can't, I want to prove a point. You can't sometimes take the words of this co- the book of covenant and directly apply it to our lives. There's no way we can come to this. How many of you guys here own ox? How many of you guys are digging pits and allowing someone... What's the opportunity for an ox to fall in a pit that you've made? <laughs> Not real good, right? Like, I don't own an ox. I don't ever plan on owning ox. I don't dig holes. And the likelihood that your ox is not going to fall in my hole. So we can't take, again, this is a, a practice. It's like, don't kick the chair, right? It's, it's something that's given to a specific people in a, in a way that they live. That there's no way that the practice, this practice can carry over into our lives. But it's, uh, it's, it's one nonetheless. And so he gives us a, a scenario of how to make restitution when things happen. And you can see that uh, through the rest of the chapter. So he's given us uh, already, he's given God's people practices uh, of how to relate to God in worship. And then he says, this is how you relate to other people. And now for in chapter 22 through chapter 23, he's going to weave together the relationship with God and people. I'm just going to give a cursory overview of this and, and, and not read it all for you. But just know what's in there and you can read it on your own. So he begins in chapter 22 verse 18. He talks about how we relate to God in, in the worship with people. So this is how you deal with when there are sorcerers. This is how you deal with bestiality. These are things that you do when there are false sacrifices. Then he moves on. He says, these are how things you do when there's, there's oppressions or when there's giving or receivings of loans. Or when you look at offerings and you look at how you offer to God. When, how do you deal with your firstborn? How do you live in holiness? How do you give testimonies in court? How do you obey the Sabbaths and what festivals that God wants his people to celebrate? And that's a massive, quick overview of those, those chapters. 
But he's laying these things out so the people of God know as they begin to live this life how they are to relate and how they are to live. So we must now look at what is the purpose? Why did God give the book of covenants? Well, I think there are a couple of things we can look at, a couple of things we can learn. One, I, I believe God gave his people the book of covenants because it helped them further see his character. It gives him an opportunity to reveal who he is. It allows the people that hear this to see a couple of distinct things. One, they're able to see the distinctness between them and God. They're able to see, begin to see God's holiness and they're able to see their own sinfulness. And they're able to see that there's a distance there. But they're also able to see that even though there's distance, God has a desire to come close. Even though they're sinful, there is a part of God that is merciful, there's a part of God that is gracious, and there's a part of God that wants to reach to his people that are in this sinful world. It's a beautiful thing. And God wants to provide also ways for dealing with sin. I think another purpose of the book of covenants is that God is is showing how his people are to be distinct from the world. Since the world is able to look at God's people and see how they live and how they look differently. All of these practices they, they gave that God gave his people were almost in direct contrast to the way that we see the world working at that time. So God's prohibition towards how do you relate to slaves, well, you can see that if God's people related to the slaves in this way that he prescribes, that prescription for the way they're supposed to deal with slaves is completely and absolutely different than the way the rest of the world dealt with slaves. They would look at them and say, what do you mean after six years you let the person go? No, don't you understand? The world sees a slave as your own property, so you don't have to let them go because they're your property. Well, we let, our, we let our slaves go after six years because we follow God. We follow Yahweh, and he says, this is the way to do it. Like, that's crazy talk, right? So that's why God's given us, God's given his people, not us, specifically these, the book of covenants, so that they would be distinct from the world that the world would see how and who they worship and how they respond to this God is different than the way you worship with other people and how they live and how they care for people is different. These book of covenants also help God's people navigate the areas of life with people. Like, you know, we have questions. Like, how do, how do I respond to this? How do, I, how do I deal with this with our own lives? And the book of covenants is a place where God's people could go and say, this is how I deal with this. Like, if my neighbor's come over and broken one of my tools, this is how we deal with it. So it's a helpful thing. So we see the purpose of the covenants. But what I want us to spend the last few minutes together with is another question that I have when I come to texts like this, and hopefully it's a, it's a question that is on your mind. Is how, how does this law, and how does the gospel, how does, how does the gospel and the law come together in a way that's meaningful to me? How, how can I come to this word of God today, and how does it fit in my own life? How, how do I come away from this text and gather meaning? What am I supposed to draw from this text? I, I have a couple things I want us to see. What I want us to see is, first of all, the difference between the law and the gospel, or how they go together, is I want us to see, first of all, the proper sequence of the law. This, this helps us interpret it, and it also helps us look forward to how the gospel lives in our lives. And how does the law, how does the law relate to us? First of all, let's look at the proper sequence. We see that the law was not given as a means to redemption. 
Israel was already redeemed before the law showed up. The law came after redemption was made. So God is giving the law to show his people who are redeemed, this is now how you live because you are redeemed. Let me give you another example of that. Today, I don't pump gas for Sarah in order to stay married. Right? It's, it's not something I do in order to maintain my relationship. So I'm not, so I'm not saying, well, baby, I pumped gas for you three times this, this year, so I'm good. I don't, I don't do that to stay married. In the same way, the, the, the law was not given in order for people to stay in that same way. Nor was, was the law given to enter into relationship. So, nor did I pump gas for Sarah in order to be married, right? That wasn't, I don't pump gas in order to, to enter into this relationship. I do it because I'm already in that relationship. And so, redemption was already made. Israel was already redeemed. And because they are redeemed, this now is how we, how they live. In the same way, we're going to see in just a second, because we are redeemed, we live differently as well. Because our redemption comes from different places. It co- comes from God, but it comes through different things. The second thing, so we got to keep the proper sequence in order. The second thing is we need to understand the law was founded on faith. It was founded on faith. By the time Jesus comes in, we see that faith was severed from the law. The law, by the time Jesus shows up, was a, a way, it was turned into a job, okay? So what the, the, the people of God would do is they'd come to the law of covenants and they would make it a list of things that you had to do. And it was severed from faith. It was turned into, you do the covenant of the law so that you enter into a saving relationship. In essence, it had become legalism. And we know that as we read the New Testament, we see Jesus rails against this over and over and over again. He says what the problem was when Jesus shows up is that God's people had taken the practice and made the practice trump the principle. If you focus in on doing these things, then you're good. The way that shows up in in my child's life is, is, let's say a child comes to me and says, Dad, you got to accept me. I want to I feel loved to you. I want to be close to you because guess what? I did not kick the seat today. I didn't kick the seat today. And in fact, Dad, I haven't kicked the seat in three months. Love me. Right? If you're keeping the practices, then that, that's the way it goes. But in fact, that, that, that simple fact is missing the point because that same child may have punched his sister or her sister may have kicked them, may have said an evil word to them, and they're missing the principle altogether. Did you, did you get, get the drift? That's what we see. That's what happened by the time Jesus shows up, and he's railing against it because the people of God had missed it. I want us to see the gospel. So that's the law, the gospel. Jesus came to fulfill the principles of the law. This is a beautiful thing. Jesus did not come to serve, and, and to serve the practices of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the principles. The Ten Commandments, Jesus did in every single way. 
every single step of his life was in complete obedience to the principle of the law. And we even know that he, didn't, he wasn't even into the practices because on one occasion in Matthew 15, 2, the, the, the religious leaders came to him and said, Jesus, why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, the principle of washing your hands before you eat was given there, to again, to help God's people remember how, against the big principle, this is how you relate to God in worship. We are sinful, and so therefore we need to be washed before we come into the presence of God, working on the outside. But Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not commanding my disciples to follow that practice. I'm teaching them to love God with their whole hearts. And that will show up in a varying different ways of practices. Jesus trusted God every day and lived in complete obedience to him. He lived the life that we couldn't and paid the penalty we deserve. And through his sacrifice, the practices of God's people changed. As we're going to look next week and in, in, in into the future, the way God's, God's people related to him was continuing this, this process of sacrificing and giving offerings of things uh, to atone for their sin and to, to break down the distinction between themselves and, and between this holy God. But Jesus became that sacrifice so that through him we might be saved. And see, the difference is that the change that happens is we see, and we're going to see this further fleshing out when we turn to our attention to Romans in a couple weeks. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So there's a transition that happens. No longer are you sacrificing bulls and, and oxen and other things. You, we ourselves are the spiritual thing where we, on a daily basis, lay ourselves down on the altar of God and say, God, you use me however you see fit. We live by faith even today. Our faith is in Jesus who provided the way for our salvation uh, to come and our relationship with God to be restored. We don't live by the law but we live according to our faith in Christ. And there are principles of our faith. God still gives us principles of our faith. If we, if we go to uh, Mark or Matthew, we see that um, because we are redeemed, we live differently. There was a time in which Jesus was met by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and in verse 35 it says, and one of them, the lawyer asked him this question as a test. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is doing is, is what was trying to happen is they were saying, Jesus, what is, it, what is it that I must do? What practice must I do in order to be right with God? What is, sum it all up for me. Give me the most important one. For if I can just keep that one, then I'll be good. And Jesus says, no. He says, it's not a practice. He says, I want to go back. I want to give you these two big principles. These two big principles that were same back then, they're same now, and same carry over us today. He says, you need to love God, and you need to love people. That's what my people do. 
Those people that are in relationship with me love God and love people. So as we look at that, we don't say to ourselves, in order to be right with God, I got to love God and love people. No, what we need to do is be in right relationship with God through our faith in Jesus. When our faith is placed in Jesus, then what God miraculously does through his power and his presence and his spirit that's working in us is he begins to change the trajectory of our lives so that we begin to know how to love God and we begin to know how to love people. And that changes our practice. Let me give you how, how this shows up today. Say there's someone that um, is, is a part of our fellowship, and they say to themselves, I, I volunteer at Urban Promise. I volunteer at Urban Promise. Uh, I give my time over to Urban Promise, not because I think that giving my time at Urban Promise is going to save me or make me right before God. No, I give my life over to Urban Promise because I love God and I love people. Because my faith in Jesus has given me an opportunity to, to love like Jesus loved and to do like Jesus did. And so because of my love for God, it compels me to share in the lives of other people. Does that make sense? It's easy for us to get it flipped, turned backwards and we think to ourselves, I do these things so that I can be right with God, but it's just the opposite. So my question for us today as we come to a close is I, I encourage you today to use just these two questions. We're going to focus in on your practices because what we practice shows really what we believe, okay? So I'm going to ask you, how is it that in your life you are practicing the love of God or your love for God? And how is it in your life that you're practicing your love for people? Simple questions. I don't know the answers, what they are for your life. But I encourage you to, to think through that. And lastly, as we come to our time of close. Remember, this passage in Exodus takes place at the foot of a mountain. Throughout history, God continues to remind his people, come back to the base of the mountain. Remember, come back to this place because it's in this place that I showed you my love, my grace, my mercy, and where this covenant began. So there's times in which maybe not physically you came back to the mountain. But he continued to remind his people what took place on that mountain. He says, remember this, remember this, remember this. And we, being on this side of the cross, we have a similar place to go. We don't go back to the mountain. We don't go back to Mount Sinai. But we come back to the foot of the cross. For it's at the foot of the cross that we were reminded that God is gracious, God is merciful, God is loving, and God has a wonderful way for us to experience his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance. And so may we today return to the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. Father, I thank you that our lives are not to be conditioned to a bunch of practices in the way in which we earn our salvation or earn our relationship with you. But we do it because of what you've already done. Father, we thank you that we have the cross. We thank you that we have a place where Jesus' blood was spilled so forgiveness could be given. And we thank you that his body was broken so that our penalty could be paid. And Father, I pray that we would live as people of faith where we trust every single day in the gospel, trust in the power of Jesus and we see it working out in our relationships, relationships with our, our spouses, relationships with our kids, relationships with our coworkers, and most of all, our relationship with you. 
So be with us as we go from this place today and allow us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.